Hi, and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast, where we look at how behavioural and social sciences are being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. We're recording this on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network in order to bring behavioural and social sciences to people who are interested in it from industry, academia and from public health. I'm really excited today because we're, we're speaking to someone who uh, I've got a lot of respect for. I went over and spent some time with uh, Richard and his team over in uh, Menlo Innovations a couple of years ago and it really is something to behold. It's a really innovative organisation. It's full of passionate people and they do amazing work. A lot of the stuff they do is actually built on changing people's behaviour but also before they even get to a problem they're trying to understand what the actual issues are rather than just what people tell them the issues are. And I think that's the essence of what this show's about. So uh, onwards with the show, really excited to get some feedback from you about Rich Sheridan and his organisation. Rich is the author of two best-selling books, Joy Inc., How We Built a Workplace People Love, and Chief Joy Officer, both of which describe how to create and sustain a joyful culture at work and demonstrate that a positive and engaging leadership style is actually good for business. Menlo and Rich have been featured on the cover of Inc., Entrepreneur, Forbes, and New York magazines, and he frequently speaks at business conferences and to major corporations such as Mercedes-Benz, Nike, and 3M. Rich, welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast. Thanks for having me, Stu. Great to be here. Uh, I'm really excited to chat with you today, Rich, um, because on a, on a personal note, I uh, read your book. I read the, the first book you released and, to be honest, stole so many ideas out of it that I ended up getting in touch with you. And uh, you just said, yeah, come on out. Come out to Ann Arbor and, and see what we do. And I, I, I'd never heard of anything like that before. And, and Helen and I came out to uh, to see what you did, and it was just fantastic. So uh, it, it, this, this interview promises to be slightly different to uh, the other interviews that we've done so far, which are much more based fully within the behavioral sciences. But I'm really interested to hear your take on how behavioral science plays into what you do. Yeah, well, I think you'll see a very practical application of many of the things that uh, uh, your community probably studies and tries to affect in the real world. Great. Um, so um, why don't you just start by telling us a bit about your journey, Rich? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, my life, uh, my early life, early career was as a programmer. I started writing code when I was just a kid in high school. Way back in 1971, I think a lot of people are shocked that there were even computers back that long ago, uh, other than the ones we would have seen in Star Trek or something yeah. like that. Uh, but um, I got an early start at a great time. It was very formative for me. I was just a kid in high school at the time. And I uh, thought, this is, this is uh, this fun. I, I think I'm pretty good at it. Uh, and I, I'm, for some reason, I was able to see the future. I thought software is probably going to be a big part of the future, and I want to be a part of that future. I had no idea how big a part of the future it was going to be. Um, eventually got a couple of degrees in computer science and computer engineering from the University of Michigan right here in Ann Arbor, and uh, then launched a career, and a career that, uh, quite frankly, was by all worldly means successful. Um, I thought it would carry me for a lifetime. I thought it would take good care of my family. Uh, 
And yet mid-career, I sort of had this inwardly personal crisis that I didn't think I was cut out for the profession anymore. Things were going too wrong. Uh, there was too much chaos. Uh, bureaucracy attempted to fix the chaos, which just actually made things worse. Mm. Uh, everybody around me was unhappy. Uh, the people I worked for, the people I worked with, the people who worked for me, the customers we were trying to serve. Uh, there were bugs galore. There were unhappy users. Uh, we, we, you know, my industry has learned to call the people we serve stupid users, and then we write dummies books for those poor people. And I just thought, yeah, this isn't going to be a satisfying life. If I look back over the course of my life and say, is this what I've accomplished? Calling the people we serve stupid, delivering crappy results, uh, you know, blowing budgets, missing deadlines, working on stuff that never sees the light of day. And I, I actually actively contemplated getting out entirely. Uh, but uh, then I went home to my three daughters and my wife and the house and the cars and thought, wait a minute, they're counting on me making this work. And so I felt a bit trapped and I dug my way out by reading authors and books and maybe even ones we could talk about during the course of our conversation and ultimately reinvented a tired old public company that I worked for over a couple of year period. And then that all blew up when the internet bubble burst. And uh, while they could take all the worldly stuff away, they couldn't take away what I had learned in those two years. And in those two years, I learned something that would become with my co-founders, the basis for Menlo Innovations today. And we designed an entire organization, a set of systems that literally has one weirdly and inordinately uh, big goal, uh, and that is to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. And the way we characterize that is we want to return joy to technology for the people who pay for it, the people who use it every day, uh, and the people who do the work. And so that has... Uh, that has fulfilled me for the last 20 years. And I will tell you now, my kids are convinced I will never retire because I'm having way too much fun. Uh, and I like that. I like that my kids see in me someone who has achieved a level of career satisfaction that I don't think many or most get a chance to. And, and we're trying to share that as we did with you through the, both the book and your visit. I want to share with the world what we've learned. Um, yeah, it sounds very um, very grandiose to say that you want to end human suffering uh, as it relates to technology. What made you arrive at that specifically? When I really got sort of honest with what were we trying to accomplish at Menlo uh, and why was it that those last two years at the public company I was leading were incredibly satisfying compared to what we had experienced before, um, it started to dawn on me that we had taken away, A, the suffering that I had experienced personally as a programmer, where, you know, I will tell you that engineers at heart want to serve others. Uh, engineers want to, we, we, we love to work with our hands. We like to build things, but our real satisfaction doesn't come from the building process, even though we might think it does. It actually comes from delivering something you build and watching someone else who doesn't know what you know, doesn't know how to do what you do, take delight in that thing. Mm. You know, they look at you and they're like, wow, yeah, that's amazing that you know how to do something like this. That must feel so cool to be able to create something like this. And in my mind, when I when I really deeply connected with my own sort of personal purpose around this, 
I began to recognize this pattern throughout my industry of how many people are denied that kind of delight delivery to the people they intend to serve. And that then they start chasing other, you know, meaningful but less purposeful goals like what's my title? What's my paycheck size? How many stock options do I have? When can I retire? Uh, how big is my office? Do I have a nice window? Do I have a really fancy computer on my desk? And, you know, some of those can be very satisfying, but at the end of the day, they're really band-aids to cover up a, a brokenness that I think a lot of them want to escape. And uh, once I once I sort of figured out that pattern as I saw it, both for me personally and for the industry, I realized, wow, there's actually a ton of suffering in the software industry. We're just not coming to grips with it. And that's uh, that's where all that came from. And, and in your first book, you describe um, that sort of painful transition with the people that you were working with originally uh, in, in, in trying to get them to work in this new way uh, that you wanted to work in. in, in I wondered if you could, could because we, we have a few, um, I'm sure there'll be some organizational psychologists listening to this. And I think you don't describe it as organizational psychology, but it's certainly what I sort of thought when I was reading it. So could you just talk through briefly what what happened in that in that initial phase of trying to sort of change the, the culture of the organization? Because I can't remember if it was in your original one or if it was actually when you started Menlo that you had that, but... No, I was in the original company uh, before Menlo. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> humans are weird, right? Uh, I'm sure you know this. Uh, <laughs> we we tend to hang on to rewards, even if they're pain-filled. Uh, you know, for example, it, it, at least here in the United States, we um, we we we're proud of the fact of how hard we work. Right. Uh, you know, if I come home at night and my neighbor says to me, hey, Rich, you know, how's work going? I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm so busy. I can't even think straight. I work in overtime. I got to work through this weekend. Can't take a vacation this summer. And in those exchanges, there is, at least in our culture here, there is a reward. Because what am I really saying to you over the fence? I'm saying, oh, I'm so important. They, they can't live without me. I, I'm integral to the operation. They, they, I am just one of their most valuable people. Uh, and, and so we will hang on to that kind of reward, even if it's destroying our marriage, our relationship with our children, our health, mm. all that kind of stuff. And so I recognize that in order to make big change, and I think this is probably why you wanted to have me on your show, <laughs> we have to replace those existing rewards with a different set of rewards that are probably at least equal, maybe greater. But even then, the change quotient for humans is so difficult, right? Because we're, we're also wired to hang on to things we know versus things we don't know. And so what I, when I went to my team who was suffering in all the ways that our industry suffers, you know, they were working long hours through weekends, delivering poor quality, uh, lamenting that they could never get it done right the first time and all that kind of stuff. I suggested to them a new way of working, taking them out of cubes and offices, putting them out into a big open room, having them work together on a computer, sharing their work at one keyboard and mouse. They freaked out. You know, they, the, the first comment after they went dead silent and they all dropped their eyes and wouldn't <laughs> even look 
you know, first guy that commented said, Rich, blood mayhem murder. Don't do it. Don't pull us out of our offices. Don't put us out in a big open room. Don't make us share a keyboard with another human being. That's unbelievable concept, right? And for goodness sakes, please, please, please don't don't make me share my work with someone else. It's mine. It's mm. my code. And uh, so I knew I had a big fight. Uh, but I had two guys try it. Uh, try this new way of working, uh, which we might get into in the course of the discussion here. Two people, one computer all day long sharing work. It's not come help me with my work. This is our work done together. Right? One keyboard, one mouse. And one of the guys in that group said to me about three weeks into this experiment, he said, Rich, are you still going to pay me to work here? I'm like, what? I'm, well, what do you mean? He says, well, it's so much fun. We're getting so much done. It actually doesn't feel like work anymore. I'm not sure I should get paid for it. I'm like, wow, I'm getting blood mayhem murder at one end of the spectrum, and I will work for you for free at the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> yeah. I think I've hit Peter here. But when you get that energy from the edges like that, uh, I think there's significant possibility of change. So I've learned not to fight with the, with the blood mayhem murder side in the sense of, uh, oh, you just don't get it. Like, no, no, that energy is actually really important to a change initiative. And what do you do with those blood mayhem murder types? Do they do they work themselves out, or do they do they see the light later on? Or so in that case, um, they came along. I tricked them in other ways that we can talk about if you want. Um, but ultimately, what they got was that um, there was a different reward system waiting for them. They just didn't recognize it was even possible. When we started delivering work faster, when we started delivering better work, work that we were prouder of, work that was actually delighting the customers, work that we were getting feedback from the people who were paying us to do and the people who would one day use work we did, suddenly the, the, the switch flipped in their brains like, oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, I remember. This is why I got into this industry in the first place. It wasn't for all that other stuff of I get my work and I get to hang on to my work and I don't care if it works with anybody else's work. It's like there's this higher order thing that can happen. And, um, you know, it, it's it's funny how when, once once you flip that switch in your brain, in their brains, uh, they don't go back. They don't they don't want to try things the old way because now they've seen they can now see and compare two different contrasts. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly something, having been in the office and felt the energy and watched it all work, it is something quite unique, I think. Yes. I've just certainly yeah. not seen it since. But then I worked in, in public sector, so it's it's it's, um, it's very different here, I, I think. How have you managed to make sure that culture is completely adopted, though, across the board? Yeah, I, you know, there's probably a lot of things we do that, some behavioral scientist or cognitive psychologist could come in and study us and go, so you do know why this works, right? And we'd be sitting there going, tell us more, tell <laughs> us more. You know, we get a lot of visitors uh, from people who've done the kind of research that uh, probably your community does. And, and, and they'll start to explain to us why things work the way they do. And that's good because 
you know, sometimes things work and you don't know why, and you might change something and realize, oh, we lost some essential ingredient. It'd be really hard to get back. So I'll just rattle off a few things that I make a big, that I think make a big difference here. And then we can decide if we want to argue about any of them. I think the fact that we sit in a big open room together, including my co-founder and I, makes a big difference. That we can overhear one another, that we can see one another all day long, that when we communicate mostly inside the company, we use what we like to call high-speed voice technology. We actually talk to one another. Uh, James and I aren't separated from the rest of the team by offices or secretaries sitting in front of us as gatekeepers. We're, we're out in the room accessible to everybody on the team. Um, I think the fact that we work in pairs and we switch the pairs, pairs uh, frequently, at least once a week, uh, builds the human relationships that are important to keep things in check and balance. Mm. Uh, because I think if you establish a, uh, an intentional culture like we have, we're very intentional about our culture. Now the question is, you know, you, you could establish an intentional culture 10 years ago, uh, get everybody rallied around the point, get everybody excited. And then as time goes on, you know, people leave, they move on to other jobs or something like that. You hire new people, you grow. Think of all the, think of the percentage of your team that wasn't there for the catalytic event. So now how do you, how do you continually communicate? And a lot of companies go to posters and, you know, the introductory two-hour meeting to the culture of the company, and they think people will get it. But here, I think both through storytelling, uh, through the proximity to each other, uh, through the practices we've built. And I also think, and this is probably, I'll, I'll learn, you know, 20 years from now, that this might have been the most critical thing we do through the tours we offer. Imagine you have 3,000 people a year coming through your door who want to hear your stories. And who's going to tell the stories? Our team is going to tell the stories. And I think in that storytelling, both for the people who are telling the stories and the people on our team who are overhearing the stories being told, they're being reminded because we do one to three tours a day here at Menlo. What's most important here? What are the things that we value most about each other, about the way we approach things, about why we do things the way we do them, about what we're trying to accomplish? And so I think all of that knitted together uh, keeps the energy pretty high. Okay, I'm going to move us on a little bit then, uh, Rich. I mean, well, not too far. I just really want to know what what does your current role entail um, and how does it involve behavior change or behavioral behavioral science? You know, I, I think um, what I think what my team counts on me for as CEO uh, is uh, kind of that long-term vision. Mm-hmm. You know, where are we going ten years from now? Uh, not that I, not that that should be uniquely mine, uh, but I think they're counting on me thinking about that earlier than everybody else, and then involving them in the process. But I think the alternate title on my business card. Uh, reveals what my most important role is here. And likely uh, I will discover maybe even in this conversation, how vital it is to creating behavior change that lasts. My title is chief storyteller. I think that's the way the team knows me better than anything else here. They might call me CEO in a formal setting, but in the more casual uh, comfortable setting, they will say, oh, Rich is our chief storyteller. 
And what I've discovered about story and, and human behavior is that, uh, you know, you can put up Excel spreadsheets, uh, you can put up posters on the wall, uh, you can have instantaneous rah-rah speeches that might get people excited for a few minutes or a few hours, but it's the stories that stick. It's the stories that move our hearts, our minds, our spirits, our energy. Um, the engineer in me doesn't want to believe that we are essentially emotional creatures. I want to believe there's an algorithm, there's a spreadsheet, there's a checklist we should all be following. But uh, And so if we're going to move humans, we're going to move them by moving them through their emotions. And I believe we move them through emotions, through story. And do you, do you think, because hearing you describe it, it, it sounds almost exclusively like you're talking about motivation. Um, not not that you might do it in as, as many words, but it sounds like you're creating an environment where you've got people who are excited to be at work, which is sort of a, I would I would say it looks and feels a lot like intrinsic motivation. They, they sort of, they don't come to work just for the cash. They come to work for the love of what they're doing and because they believe in what they're doing. Is that broadly correct? Right. You know, look, I think if we look at, uh, whatever models we might want to consider as to what do humans need from their work life. Uh, compensation is certainly a, a part of that. Mm. Uh, I think what humans really look for at some of the more basic levels of a relationship with the company they work for is, am I be, being treated fairly? Am I being treated fairly within the context of the place I work in? Am I being fairly treated within the context of the world in which I work? And I think if you can answer those questions uh, in their minds, of course, if they can answer them for themselves, that, yeah, I, I can see that I'm being treated fairly. And I think there's some uh, kind of radical things we do here to uh, uh, confirm that in people's minds uh, in terms of how we compensate, how we promote, how we even are open about the compensation of our staff with each other. Mm -hmm. Everybody here knows what everybody else is making, which... Mm -hmm. uh, I'll get corporate visitors who hyperventilated that idea. <laughs> but I always, I have a basic tenant in management that I've learned over the years that when you hide information, everyone will make up a story in absence of the information. And I've never actually seen humans make up a better story than reality. They always make up a worse story. So true. So true. I, I mean, one of the things, I, as I talk to you, I'm thinking more and more about all the things that I've, I've, um, stolen from you over the years i say that in in, a, in an affectionate way um it, we it, consider that to be the greatest compliment yes it is a massive compliment it is and i talk about you a lot but the the um the thing that i'm thinking as you as you talk about this um it comes down to something that underlies i think everything you do which is running the experiment mm -hmm. and so i wondered if you could talk us through that a little bit uh, I'll I'll start with a story and then we can back up into the details because I got to live up to my title. Number one, um, twelve years ago, Tracy had little Maggie, and um, she didn't know what to do after three months of maternity leave because uh, the daycare they planned to use was full. Grandparents lived too far away to help, and so I suggested to her that we run an experiment to have her bring in little Maggie all day every day, and she was Tracy was dubious. She didn't think it would work. But I said, Tracy, let's let's try it. Let's see what happens. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You have to go home again. 
So she did. Uh, she brought in little Maggie all day, every day for several months, and it worked beautifully, uh, far better than even I could have imagined. Well, Elsie's coming in these days with George. Um, Elsie is Menlo baby number 24 in the last 12 years. Wow. Uh, this has been a delightful experiment for us. We didn't know if it would work. That's one of our grandest, most popular experiments yeah. that are talked about. We have a lot of other ones, but that one probably blows people away. Yeah, much simpler version of this is somebody thought, and I bet you would agree with this, Stu, mm -hmm. that having stand-up desks in our office might be a really good, healthy idea for the team. We spend a lot of our days sitting here at Menlo typing in code at a computer, and somebody thought, hey, I think a stand-up desk would be good. Well, you might imagine when you're the CEO of a company that's watching every penny, the idea of buying stand-up desks for everybody could be a little bit disconcerting from a budgetary standpoint those those things can get pretty expensive they are they are incredibly expensive actually yeah yeah and so what our team did though was not come to us and say hey we want to buy a you know two thousand dollar stand-up desk for every pair of our people they took a chair they put it up on a table they put a board on the seat of the chair they put the monitor and keyboard on a board and within three minutes they were running a stand-up desk experiment and I think that spirit of our team uh, allows us to make, you know, kind of an attitude of what, what's the simplest thing that could possibly work that could demonstrate whether this is a good idea or not. And that really elevates the energy of a team and the spirit of a team to say, well, let's just try it. See what happens. Don't you? Yes. Is it your team that has somebody that has the chief joy, not happiness officer yes. or something? Yes. Yeah, she, she has since left, and we're, we're now uh, looking to replace that person. But um, I, we made her – it was the chief happiness, brackets, well, comma, joy, brackets, okay. officer. And I made her say it that way every time she explained <laughs> it because it invoked the chat. What, why, why have that cumbersome title? Well – because I wanted people to know the difference between happiness and joy. And again, it, it comes down to, I, I was very, very taken with um, Joy Inc. Uh, having worked in local authority, the NHS, um, in, in places where there were a lot of people I worked with that just, just weren't happy at work. And so part of the reason that I love running Busybodies is because we get a chance to give people an opportunity to do meaningful work but also have fun whilst doing it. There'd be no point in running this company for me if it wasn't fun. Well, and I think that the trouble with corporate land uh, still to this day is a lot of people think that takes away, mm. uh, that there's a cost to that. I'm like, really? Like, you think if people came in with a spring in their step every morning, they were maybe got out of bed a little bit earlier, were excited, took fewer sick days because they were just excited to be at work, enjoyed the camaraderie of their team members. Do you really think there's a cost to that? Because quite frankly, I think most of probably what you do and what I do are, you know, in our organizations is free. That is, you're completely right. I mean, what, what, how do you, I, I, I think that's probably, I, I need to, I want to bring it back to because um, you mentioned before about um, you, you know a, a behavioural psychologist or someone um, from from that world will probably come and start telling you all of the all of the reasons why all the things you were. How much of of what you've done and what you're doing now has been with this express intention, knowing what what it, what what 
behaviorally is driving it? Yeah, we had a visit probably about eight or nine years ago now from one of the founders of a company in Salt Lake City called Vital Smarts. Mm-hmm. Vital Smarts is most famous in the world for their book, Crucial Conversations, which is all about improving how we communicate with one another as human beings. Their more famous work, though, is born out of their, um, uh, out of their motto, which is change behavior, change the world. I'm sure you're, you and your community would wholeheartedly believe in. And they've made me a believer in that through their work on a book called Influencer mm-hmm. and the influencer model that they have researched well and deeply over the last 30 years. And what they did was they came here and visited us and they started telling us through the lens of their influencer model, which uses six sources of influence for creating lasting behavioral change. They started telling us why our system worked so well. And we were ready students. We were sitting on the edges of our chairs, learning from them about the influencer model, how it worked and why all the things we were doing, it was like we were aboriginal behavioral scientists here. Uh, You know, it was like, we just, you know, there's a lot of communities who find us, the lean community, the agile community, the, you know, the behavioral science community, the cognitive psychology community in there. Uh, they'll look at us and say, so you know why this works, right? And we're like, no, we have no idea. Please tell us. And we're just doing it because we know it's the right thing to do and it seems to be producing good results. And so we've become real students of the influencer model from Vital Smarts. And it looks at six sources of influence that influence all of our behavior. And those sources are present in everything we do, uh, whether it's at the skill level or the motivational level, whether it's at the personal, the social, or the structural ingredients, uh, no matter what we're trying to accomplish in our lives, they, are, they will either be supported by or confounded by these six sources of influence. What they saw here was they use a term that I think is, is kind of a cool term because it's pretty easy to understand. They said to us, they said, Menlo, your systems that you've put in place here are built to over-determine success. In other words, you don't do one thing to make sure things succeed. You do six things to make sure they succeed. So that if one drops off a little bit, the other five are there to support. And there's nothing that's working against it. And so you, you, it's almost like, you, you know, what they told us was you can't help but succeed with everything you're doing. And it was kind of neat to see that lens, see it through that lens. That's, do, do, do you um, have, can you give us an overview of those six um, influences? Yeah. So at Menlo, uh, there's so many things we do here uh, that provide all those sources of influence. I think the purpose of our organization, this idea of ending human suffering in the world as it relates to technology, attracts the right kind of people. They come in with a personal motivation because of maybe what they've experienced in their lives. And they're like, I want part of that. They don't know how to do it necessarily, so we have to teach them some skills. Mm-hmm. But that comes to our pairing model, which is the essence of the social motivation and skill building that comes from sitting with a person who already knows how to do what we do. And of course, the structural motivation of our space, our physical artifacts on the wall uh, that provide that structural motivation and the skill necessary to know what am I supposed to be working on? What are the most important things? All of those things start working together to make sure we stay on track. We know how to, you know, there's a number of like 
sort of vital behaviors we have here, like the ability to give people honest feedback, the ability to raise your hand and declare when things are going wrong and, uh, and not be chastised for it. So I consider one of my primary roles here as a leader is to pump fear out of the room as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I have to guard myself from doing it because as a CEO, I mean, I can, I can generate fear as well as anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, all those things working together keep Menlo moving forward in a way that actually doesn't require a lot of oversight because the system runs a lot of what we do here. And what I, so, so understanding how you, um, how you develop the company is one thing. What, what you then deliver to people, that has a lot of behavior there's a lot of behavioralism in there i i um i i mean i'm talking really about the the high-tech anthropology stuff that you that you do um which is a strange sentence um but if if you could just tell tell us about the what what high-tech anthropology is and why you think that has an impact in terms of the products that you're able or services that you're able to produce and what, what behavioral science or behavior change stuff you're doing within that, that makes it so, so unique and, and useful. Yeah. Yeah. So when we decided we wanted to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology, there was one big area we really wanted to tackle. And that was for the people who one, one day use the work that we do here, you know, most software tortures people. Uh, you know, it, it is just, it's hard to use. It, it uses terms pe- regular people don't understand it because engineers chose the words and all that sort of thing. And, and engineers have this odd uh, construct. And, and a lot of us are guys, you know, it's still kind of a, a male dominated profession. And uh, having raised three daughters, uh, you know, I will tell you, I'm very solution oriented person. Uh, and I think that's really where our anthropologists come in. Uh, engineers by their very nature are very solution-oriented. We'll even come up with solutions for which there are no problems. (laughs) Uh, And so the anthropologists are there to discover problems, the real problems, not not the ones even people imagine they have. Because a lot of times the things we think are problems aren't the actual root cause of whatever we're trying to fix. And so the anthropological approach and the people on our team who are called high-tech anthropologists, their first job Get out of the building and go observe the human behavior in the world and understand it. Understand their workflows, their their goals as human beings, understand what their obstacles are. And I think a lot of our human organizations that try to apply technological solutions to problems think they have one problem when they actually have a different problem. Mm. And so the anthropological approach is let's find out what the real problem is long before we're trying to figure out what the solution to the problem is. Yeah. If we find a real problem, it might not even need technology, high technology. You might be able to solve it with low tech. You might solve it with behavioral change. You might solve it with vocabulary change. We don't know. But our anthropologists go out in the world, study and observe, later interview. We, we want to, you know, but, but we want to learn through observation rather than interrogation or interview without interruption. Because in that way, we see the world through a fresh lens, through a fresh set of eyes. We start to see things nobody sees anymore. But anyways, um, so the anthropologists will go out in the world, observe people, begin to collect data about the people we're trying to understand, uh, and then use that information to design the user experience and then test that experience that they've designed 
uh, in very simple ways against those same kind of people that we're trying to serve. Because most software frustrates us because it was designed by engineers and it works really well for other engineers. You know, if you knew what I knew, this would all make sense. Uh, and what is, can you can you can you articulate what the value of the observation is over, for example, asking people what what their issues are or or um, what they want fixing? Sure. Yeah, we had a customer, a logistics firm, come come to us. So this is people who have trucks that move stuff from one city to another in the United States, and they had grown by acquisition. So they went from a sort of a regional firm in the upper Midwest to nationwide firm coast to coast. And they'd grown very quickly uh, through, ac through acquiring all these other companies. And now they had a big problem. If, if somebody made a call to the Denver office for a move to Indianapolis, for example, uh, they might have called the wrong end of the equation and the data has to be transferred from one office to the other so that the, the move can accomplish uh, easily. But they didn't have a common CRM system, a customer relationship management system across the whole corporation. Each city, where depending which company was acquired, had their own different system. So sharing data was actually really hard in their world. And so the corporate offices called us into their Minneapolis headquarters and said, we want you to help us create this unified customer relationship management system. And we said, great, because that's a solution. Hmm. We said, what problem are you trying to solve? And they said, well, the problem is offices can't share data with one another easily. And so we lose customers because of that. And our team, using their approach, uh, frustrated this management team at the Minneapolis headquarters when they said, well, we would like to go visit these local offices and see the problem directly. And the management team said, well, you don't really know, need to do that. We, we, we know what the problem is. Just build us this unified CRM system and all will be well. But our anthropologists using their gentle approach said, yeah, you know, but, you know, humor us. We want to go visit a couple of offices. We'll go to Denver. We'll go to Indianapolis. We'll see what happens. When we got to the offices and they asked us why we were there, we told them and we said, here's what the proposed solution is. And the people in those offices in both places said, we would never share data with another office. And if they create a system that makes us do that, we will fat finger some of the data so that they will not be able to contact the customer. Why? Yeah. And so our team said, well, why would you do that? And they said, oh, you got to understand our compensation system is driven by outperforming all the other offices. Uh -huh. The best performing unit gets the highest bonus. So if we're sharing data with the other office, we'll likely lose that competition. So we would never share data. Wow. Yeah. And so, so, we went back, so we went back to corporate and they were, they were furious with us because this was not the answer they wanted to hear. Mm. And we said, guys, we could build you the best darn system. You could spend millions of dollars building this system. And it will not be used. And if it is used, they will sabotage the data. And we said, you have to start an HR and you have to look at your compensation and bonus system. Until you do that, you will not affect the change in the rest of the organization. They finally got it. They took that approach. We lost the project because 
they didn't they they had to start on that project later. Uh, but for us, that's almost the essence of joy is that we discovered the problem they really needed to solve rather than building a solution mm. that nobody would have been happy with and wouldn't have actually solved the problem. Yeah, I think that's a really good example of um, the value of observation over being told what the problem is. And we we, um, we did a uh, an obs- we took a we took a HDA approach. We've we've still got our folder, the Menlo Way um, deep dive thing that we did, um, and we took we used that when we did a project in secondary schools, which is over here is age sort of you know, eleven to sixteen or eighteen if they've got a college attached, and. We were asked to go and to go and work out what teenagers thought about weight, health, mental health, that type of stuff, um, and we took a HDA approach of interviewing some of them, asking them what they thought the problem was, and we also interviewed them in groups to see what the public, you know, whether there was a difference there because obviously then there was a social influence on what they were willing to say or not say. Uh, but we also did an observation in the in the canteen and and uh, over lunch in various schools and for a couple of times, and watching them and just noting with no no because you, you go in with a beginner's mind right, uh, and watching them and noting down everything that we could see and then later sort of having a a couple of chats with them informally as they were sort of eating or whatever made the whole report probably I, I mean fifty percent of the insight that we reported back was based on the observation work. Uh, and the subsequent discussions that we had as a, as a result of a much richer experience because people are they're, they're poor at understanding what it is that's driving their behavior yep. um, i mean the example you gave was very direct actually if i asked you what how you did what you do you'd describe it to me in drippy detail but if i watch you do what you just described i'd find out oh you don't do anything like what you described and, uh, and we think we're cognizant of all that stuff, but most of the stuff we see is to the to the person doing it is kind of invisible. I remember one time we were doing an observation, and uh, one of the things we do during an observation is we try and get the user to think out loud while they're doing some activity, so we can at least kind of hear what's on their mind. And we were watching this user use a piece of software and, uh, and do some work, and they were doing a good job of articulating uh, what they do. But then they they would stop. They would reach into a drawer. They'd pull out a little chart. They'd look at it, put their finger, then put some data in, put the chart back in a drawer under their desk. And later we asked them, we said, hey, um, could we get a copy of that chart you used while you were doing this work? And they said, what chart? Well, the one down in your drawer. I don't use any chart. No, no, no. Open the dresser. Oh, that, yeah, that's my job code. That's actually what drives my pay, you know. (laughs) Automatic in their day, they they didn't even think about it anymore. Mm. So, I mean, there's all these fascinating things you learn through observation you would never learn through interview. And and so it it sounds to me like what you're describing is um, you're observing the habitual stuff that people do that drives their actual behavior versus what they can cognitively process and tell you they do. Right. Yeah. Um, but what I was wondering, because you've been talking a lot about, um, I, I, you know, these are these are all things that you've described in in the book and through the courses that you do on on uh, Menlo. What what have you ever done any projects in health? Uh, and if so, what 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 did they entail? You know, we we did a project for a local VA hospital here. What's a um, VA hospital? Uh, 
sorry, uh, Veterans Administration. So right. it is a specific hospital system set up for uh, veterans when they, after they uh, come home from various uh, wars. So, you know, there's probably still some World War II vets that are using them in their right. 90s. Obviously, uh, Korean War and Vietnam War and Iraq War and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, one of the biggest challenges in healthcare is uh, adherence to uh, prescription medication orders, right? Am I taking yeah. my pills? Am I taking when I'm supposed to take them? Have I, you know, uh, and so uh, we worked uh, in that area. Uh, for uh, prescription compliance. So that was a fun one. Uh, we also worked in a, um, uh, uh, with a uh, startup company that was trying to create a new kind of uh, monitor system for kids inhalers uh, so that, um, uh, you know, the, the trouble with inhalers for kids that have asthma and that sort of thing is uh, there's, the, um, there's the kind of inhaler that if you take it when you're supposed to will prevent you from having to use the emergency inhaler. Mm. Uh, but that requires a behavior change because usually uh, uh, up to the point you need the emergency inhaler, the, uh, you're asymptomatic. When you need the medicine, you don't think you need it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was another one. Uh, we've what, also what, worked- What did you do there, Rich, with that one? Yeah, that was an interesting one because uh, it was for children, and uh, and it was going to be a device that was going to be installed in homes. Uh, and so we had to find out where will this device be installed? Where will it actually sit? Because uh, it's going to have some wireless capabilities to monitor things. And the data was going to go all the way back to the doctor's office as well. And, uh, and so some of the things we found out was that, uh, you know, these things were going to be in uh, would, uh, if, if they were going to model current behaviors, they were going to be in bathrooms. And the place it was going to be in bathrooms didn't have an electrical outlet because uh, you know, a lot of bathrooms don't have conveniently located electrical outlets. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of those kind of environmental conditions that would have prevented the adoption of the product. Um, there was another project we did that uh, involved... Um, uh, monitoring a new kind of approach, kind of a data-driven AI, almost like approach to um, uh, insulin management for insulin-dependent uh, diabetics. And uh, this was, it's, it's probably one of the most successful healthcare initiatives we've done. Uh, I could even send you a video about some of the effects uh, that this has had. Uh, but it's literally changing the lives of people in terms of how they manage their insulin flow uh, because of a completely different user experience for when to take my insulin and how much to take. Amazing. Um, and and um, so I, I just want to move us on to um, a couple of questions about what in your industry. So, so in your industry, as, is there anyone else that's doing behavior change or behavioral science particularly well? Is, have you seen a lot of good practice? You know, there, there certainly is. You know, I think the whole agile software development movement itself is all about behavior change. Uh, a lot of times, though, and you probably see this in your world as well, a lot of times we try and sub-optimize and localize the change rather than look at the really big picture. And so I think that one of the reasons the world finds us fascinating is this is a complete system here. 
It's a system of human resource management, how we interview, how we onboard, mm-hmm. how we compensate, how we give feedback to employees of the company. Uh, it's a system of project management. You know, how do we manage the relationship with our customers and how do we visualize uh, how their project's going? Uh, it's a system of teamwork and quality assurance. It's a system of design. So what you what you typically find, for example, you might find a company like IDEO or our Cooper Design, uh, who do a great job in that area like we do in our high-tech anthropology practice. You know, we revere both of those firms in terms of their contribution. But they, they, I think they both get frustrated when they can't connect it to the engineering effort that actually builds the product. And because our anthropologists are in the same room, often sitting shoulder to shoulder with the anthropologists, the anthropologists actually have a strong uh influence, uh, almost uh, ironclad influence on how the design is, whereas a lot of designers, no matter how good they are, often can only make strong suggestions to a development team, and the development team ignores them because they come up with some better idea. I woke up last night, and I I have a simpler way of doing this, Uh, but they don't realize how much work we've done through the observation to do it exactly like we've described it. So I think that uh, there's a lot of great examples in the world uh, of people who do a piece of what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as Jeff Liker, who writes a lot of books about Toyota, said about us in an article one time, they said, any piece you find at Menlo, you will find somewhere else. He says, this is the first place I've seen where all of the pieces are tied together. Yeah, it, I, I understand what he means because it's – it's um, for, for listeners who – I've never read any of your books or, or certainly been to, to Menlo. It is hard to imagine and hard to get your head around, and particularly if you're not from tech as well. Um, but I think one of the most interesting elements of what you do is in the is in from a, from a behavioural science perspective and in bringing it to people as opposed to the organisational um, psychology that, that that's really inherent in what you're doing, whether you're calling it that or not, is the the, the, the this high, this notion of the high tech anthropology and, and how it in how it interacts with the development of the ideas and then the end product that goes to people to actually make their lives better in some way, whether it's software for a logistics company or whether it's you know, healthcare for someone. And from our perspective or from from the public health perspective, how it actually impacts people's lives um, either directly through intervention or an upstream intervention like a, a campaign. Um, the, the best example I, I can think of in, in um, physical activity terms is a campaign called This Girl Can from the UK. Um, and it was uh, Sport England working with a really well-known marketing agency the, the reason it was so useful here uh, in, in the UK was because they did a lot of insight work before and insight work in a way that they haven't done in the past. They spent a lot of time talking to women and they came up with a very simple and um, regularly occurring set of issues. And that was judgment. Uh, women felt judged by men, judged by each other and judged by themselves. And so with that in mind and having witnessed that in all in many different forms, it informed all of the way that they created the copy, the content, but also they showed all the real life stories that people were were, were, were exhibiting when they when they observed them. And I don't think they would have got that from focus groups. Uh, right. And and so it's it's one of the things that's always stuck with me really from um, coming out to Menlo and seeing what 
you guys do that. Well, a lot has, but one of the most useful elements is giving a, a language to that process of, uh, of of observation, and then and then recognizing its value uh, as as a tool to really mine into what people are uh, really doing in their everyday lives. And I think from a public health perspective, that's the thing that we need to do the most. A lot of public health efforts have failed because they've thought it was about education, uh, which is a part of public health but actually it's about how do you apply that in a way that's meaningful to people and if people can't describe to you how they live their lives every day how can you possibly take their what they tell you and and design something that really fits into their real life right um so i'm just trying to think if there's anything else which i want to cover off with you um i know i could sit and talk to you for hours i know you're you're busy so i don't want to take up too much of your time but um I'm trying to think about how how to to from the audience that we're that we're going to have. So we've got a public health industry and academic audience. What I'm hoping people will be is intrigued about the non-academic nature of what you're talking about and how to apply it, um, or how how they think it's working and what that means in terms of their own practice. Because what I think you've got there is a, is a sort of a lived example of lots of different behavioral principles at play that work in the real world what i think we should be doing is trying to understand why that is and how we could apply that externally i'm certainly trying to understand it uh, and failing miserably in most areas but but a couple of things have really stuck and, and they've been you know revolutionary for us um so i suppose um some of the questions i normally ask is about how how people um who are interested in your field would get into it but what i'm really more interested in is in a non-tech field how could someone apply a lot of the principles that they could read in your book uh, or if they came along to a course how could they apply those principles in their work and, I, and i'm thinking about working in health public health and with, with the public yeah well fortunately because of our tours uh, we get a lot of people from different industries and some of them are coming to learn about tech stuff. Some of them are coming to learn about how a technical team works. How could we build better software? And of course, we're, we're pretty good at speaking to that. But many of them are coming because they want to learn how to build a different kind of culture. Uh, and I would say the two largest non-technical groups by number every year are healthcare and education. Mm-hmm teachers, administrators in schools, because those, at least here in the U.S., are pretty broken cultures. Mm -hmm. They spend a lot of money to little effect. Uh, They seem to, the more money they spend, the less effect they have, uh, and are confounded because they've been trying for decades sometimes to make things better, and they don't seem to be able to. And then they come here, and they see a living, breathing example of a a firm that... uh, has dramatically changed the results of its industry and they take away some hope from those visits. And so we have seen uh, effects of this in uh, schools. Uh, We have seen uh, probably less of this in healthcare systems because the the crushing part of healthcare systems most of the time is the bureaucracy, either loaded upon them by the federal government regulations or just because of their own history and culture. Uh, most of the healthcare systems here are ginormous, mm. and it's very difficult to change the course of uh, of a mighty ship. Uh, although I do point them to uh, 
some great examples inside the U.S. Navy. Uh, Captain Michael Abershoff's book, It's Your Ship, or, or David Marquet's book, Turn the Ship Around. And these are dramatic stories of change, much along the lines of Memo. I've talked to both of those gentlemen, and uh, there are a lot of parallels between what they did in their Navy stories in one uh, uh, worst performing destroyer in the Navy turning into the best performing uh, destroyer in the Navy in less than two years' time with the same crew of 18 and 19-year-olds, and David Marquet's story of a nuclear sub that he took over where he was um, uh, not prepared to be the captain of that sub, so he had to really rely on the crew for a lot of the technical detail. And uh, those two stories, I think, when you put them next to the Memlo story, because a lot of people come here and they say, oh, well, of course, Rich, you're a CEO, you're an entrepreneur, you, you started this way, you, you're you a small team, you can do whatever you want. Uh, but this would never work in my organization because we're to fill in the blank. Um, but we see a lot of people are able to take uh, inspirational stories and make big changes. We've seen it happen inside of manufacturing organizations, inside of life insurance companies, inside of schools. Uh, and make big changes in the way they work that have nothing to do with software at all. So I would certainly uh, encourage um, people to either pick up copies of the book, uh, but those who can come visit, um, because uh, I think there are, we have seen many, many like you come away and take away uh, pieces and parts. And there's no part of our bone, any bone in our body where we're going to say, uh, Make your company look like our company. That's not the purpose of a visit. We're not trying to convince anybody to do things exactly the way we do them, but rather to come and see a living, breathing example of a system at work and then take away lessons. You can take away anything you want. We're not, obviously, we've chosen to share what we've learned with the world. So we're not trying to keep anything a trade secret here. But we don't ever want to come across as saying, we have found the one true way that work should work. Uh, no, we found a way that works and works for us. And there might be some lessons you can learn from seeing an actual example of a system uh, that changes behavior and the results of those behaviors in a dramatic way. Um, so, yeah, I, I um, Rich, I, 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 thanks so much for your time today. I, I know you're a really busy guy and um, I've really enjoyed chatting to you i think you're this is a very different type of interview to the other ones that we'll have on this podcast and i think there's a real value to that uh, because it, it shows not only uh, in an organizational psychology sense and even though we didn't use any of those terms it, i think the people listening will be able to infer a lot of the stuff and i'd be interested to hear from listeners actually about what they think about menlo and and what's going on there and if if anyone does come back to me with some of that stuff i'll be happy to share it with you um but if if you um if people want to get hold of you how could they get hold of you rich yeah uh we have a fairly strong social media presence uh my twitter id is menlo prez p-r-e-z uh we have a company one menlo innovation uh only because the s couldn't fit in their length of name uh they can write me by email, rsheridan at menloinnovations.com. Uh, visit our website, come visit us. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I would love to uh, be connected to your community. I think we learned a lot from them. 
Great. Rich, thanks so much for your time. You bet. Just wanted to say thanks again there to Rich Sheridan from Menlo Innovations. I think you'll agree it was a really fascinating insight into some of the stuff that they do there at Menlo Innovations. They're using a lot of techniques there that are designed to change people's behavior, to understand the issues that they're really trying to solve rather than just focusing on the obvious problems that uh, the clients are talking to them about there. Really interesting thing to check out the courses they do. I mean, just the titles are interesting uh, and it's on their website, menloinnovations.com. So yeah, just wanted to say thanks again to Rich. We'll have another really interesting guest next month. Uh, in fact, next month we're going to have two shows come out. We're going to have a special edition with M. Rahman, who's going to be talking about some, some behavior change tools that are available for people to use, and we'd love to get your feedback on those. And then we've also got Dr. Justin Varney, who's the Director of Public Health at Birmingham City Council. Uh, and so Justin's bringing a lot of experience and evidence to a process of trying to change a lot of people in the Birmingham City area. So uh, look out for that one. Really, really interesting chat I had with um, with Justin. Just wanted to remind listeners that we do this podcast on behalf of the BSPHN. And you can join the BSPHN at www.bsphn.org.uk. And you can join the BSPHN for just £25 if you're working or £10 if you're not working, including if you're a student. There's loads of benefits to joining, including discounted fees for events, workshops and CPD sessions. But the thing I love most about it is when you go along to some of the BSPHN events, there's just loads of like-minded people really passionate about behavioural science and behavioural insights from public health, from industry, from academia. And they're all looking to have like great conversations with people about how they could work together and to share practice. So well worth joining, something that you should seriously consider. You can sign up for my blog at www.busybody.com dot com forward slash blog for my views on public health behavior change and running a company with the express aim of doing meaningful work and having fun whilst doing it and if you enjoyed the podcast please leave a review on whatever medium you downloaded it on it will take less than a minute and could help someone to discover the great work that's going on from industry from academia and from public health if you want to get hold of me i'm on at stew underscore king underscore hh on twitter and i look forward to hearing from you really soon 